This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry. You're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. What's good, everyone? This is Dr. Nee. So glad, so grateful that you tuned in for another episode of Docs Outside the Box. Now, let me take y'all all the way back to a young Nee. Now, young Nee was watching a lot of TV growing up. I mean, a lot of TV. Particularly, I used to love the reruns of Doctor's shows. So I was messing with Trapper John. I don't know if you all remember that. Some of the millennials are too young to remember that, but I rocked with Trapper John. Obviously, St. Elsewhere. I remember that was Denzel Washington's first big gig. Heathcliff Huxtable with The Cosby Show that watched ER, Doogie Howser. You know, all of those shows, you name it, I was watching it. And I couldn't verbalize how I felt about doctors at that moment. But what I really enjoyed about it was that doctors were at the center of healthcare, right? They were the team leaders. And as we all know, things don't change. Like shit has really changed. It's not like that anymore. So on this episode, I'm going to be chopping it up with Dr. Mark Shapiro. He hosts the podcast called Explore the Space, which I highly recommend. All of you all put this show on your podcast list. Subscribe to this show. It's a really good show. But he's going to be jumping on a hot seat, talking about where the hell do physicians fit in the current landscape of healthcare? Are we in the center? Are we stuck right on the bench while the MBAs make all the decisions? Who knows? So we're going to get real. We're going to get raw. We're going to be talking about some uncomfortable topics in this episode, but things that generally aren't talked about. So I want you all to share this with others, share it through Instagram, reach out to me, let me know what you think about this episode. And without further ado, I present Dr. Mark Shapiro with Explore the Space Podcast. Let's get it. Dr. Mark Shapiro from Explore the Space Podcast, a podcast that examines the interface between healthcare and society with thought leaders from across the spectrum. And that's what we're going to do on this show. Dr. Mark Shapiro, welcome to Docs Outside the Box. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I remember when I first saw your podcast pop up kind of in the space that we're all doing this work. I said, oh, man, that's a provocative title. I like it. And I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you. It's an interesting road. I've gotten a couple of people who said, I thought about this. Why didn't, you know, I should have done this a little bit earlier and so forth. And when yeah. you start to hear things like that, you're just like, man, like, I probably should have started it even years earlier because this has always been in my mind. I just never got a chance to start it. But just like you two, I'm really interested and excited about talking to you. One of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, the main reason is, is 
you interview doctors, but that's not the main focus. The show is not just for doctors. The show is about talking about healthcare, how it fits in society, what's going on in the future. And you feature a whole bunch of people who are on your show, not just physicians. And I think they take oftentimes a very interesting take on healthcare. And oftentimes, I'm not sure where physicians fit in that. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that's bad. But I'd like to have you on the show so we can have the discussion as to with where medicine is going, with where healthcare is going, with where technology is coming with all of their money, where exactly do us as doctors, physicians, and just in general, even medical practitioners, where do we fit in this? So I am more excited now than I was 90 seconds ago. That's a really provocative take. Mm -hmm. I actually hadn't thought of it like that, that you're absolutely right. So the show Explore the Space is created for anyone who is in healthcare and works to deliver healthcare and also for those who seek healthcare. So when people ask me, you know, who's the audience for the show? It's not a niche audience. It's pretty much everybody. I'd never thought of it that way, that having this really eclectic list of guests that we've had and, you know, episode 102 just went out. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. That's a big deal. I've never thought of it that how do physicians actually fit into that space? So that's a really provocative thought. And I love it. Thank you for that. Yeah. You know, when you look at it that way, I think it's a good thing, right? Because if you're a physician, you're listening to your show, you're just like, wow, like there's a lot of this conversation, thought processes that are going on. It's moving in a positive direction. But, you know, also at the same time, anybody who's really self-critical or someone who really takes a good look at themselves from a 30,000 foot view can be like, wow, like there's a lot of progress going on that's not really physician centered. That could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. So it's just like, you know, that's what I wanted to get your opinion. Let's talk about this and and figure out like, are we the bottlenecks? Maybe (laughs) it's going to be better. You know, obviously we know the answer to that, but it's an interesting take. So before we get so far into the nitty gritty, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Tell us about your show. Tell us where you trained at, where you live, all of those different things. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Northern California. I was really fortunate. I went to UCLA for undergrad. I got my bachelor's degree in history and, and getting that, what was called at the time, a non-traditional degree. That was a really powerful thing for me. I'm still a huge fan of history. I still love to read about history and it informs my work on a daily basis. I went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and I got to be in the Texas Medical Center for four unbelievable years. The Texas Medical Center, there really and truly is nothing like it in the world. So that was just really rich and extraordinary training for me. And then internal medicine residency was in San Diego at UCSD. And then I worked as a hospitalist. I've been a hospitalist now coming up on 14 years this September. I worked with Sharpie Steely Medical Group in San Diego for 10 wonderful years. And now I'm in Santa Rosa and I work as a hospitalist and I have a leadership portfolio as a medical director and associate medical director there. And it's just been a wonderful journey. And, you know, it's fun to have these outside interests, but I'm like you, right? I'm a busy practicing physician. And when people ask me about, you know, priorities and things like that, the fuel that drives all of this stuff is just trying my best to be a solid, caring, competent, patient-centered, team-centered doc. Keeping my feet firmly grounded there allows me to have bandwidth and insight to do other stuff, but that's the engine. That's the fuel for the fire for sure. Now, what was the fuel for starting your podcast? And you started this back, what, 2015, right? I started in 2015. Uh I've always loved storytelling. I got into audiobooks really young. I had a friend when I was a little kid whose parents actually created audiobooks. And so for, you know, if I had a birthday, he would give me like The Hobbit on audiobook. And I would love those things. I would just listen to them over and over. That idea of the oral tradition always really resonated with me as well. And I was working with a colleague of mine in San Diego, Steve Beeson, who had started a company called Practicing Excellence. And it's, you know, physician coaching and organizational improvement. And I was doing hospital medicine curriculum for them. And I suggested to them, hey, you should be creating podcasts because I was a really early podcast adopter. I got into listening to podcasts years ago. 
So started one with them and saw, boy, this isn't that hard. And this looks like a lot of fun. Let's just do it. There was nothing more to it than that. I didn't have like a clear vision yet. I just wanted to have interesting conversations with people doing fascinating things and let's see what happens. And here we are five years and a hundred plus episodes later. Just in general, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned over the past, let's say what, five years now that you've been doing podcasting? Congratulations for sticking and doing it that long. Not many people make it that far. Yeah, that's a really great question. I would say the thing that I have been most struck by that is a real accelerant and a real motivator is that people who you think or perceive might be inaccessible or just anybody in general, when you cold call them or cold email or cold text them or tweet them, they want to come on these shows. Yeah. They want to talk about what they're doing. You and I first connected probably like a year ago, I think yeah. on a Facebook group. And I was like, I don't know, man, he's got a pretty big show and he's doing cool stuff, but oh, let's just give it a shot. I have to remind myself, right? Step into the tension, just ask the question. And you immediately were like, yeah, let's do this. People want to do this work. They want to share the cool things they're doing, not because they have big egos, not because I can pay them anything. They want to put their knowledge and insights, experiences, and thrills and chills into the world so we can learn from it. And that by far has been the most inspiring and motivating piece of this. And it's not close. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, some people say, well, I may have a big show. Some people will say, or a lot of people say you have a big show or. I think with social media nowadays, like a lot of the barriers that would have existed 20 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, trying to get in touch with someone who's doing a show. Obviously, at that time, it probably wouldn't have been on podcasts, but whatever it may be, like you would never have been able to get in contact with someone and say, hey, look, let's collaborate on something like this, right? That's That's the best part about podcasting. That's the best part about social media that I enjoy is that me and you probably would never interact. We're in two different specialties. You live on one side of the country. I'm on the other side of the country. Like 15 years ago, this type of collaboration more than likely would never have happened. And I'm just really excited about it because, you know, it allows, I think, doctors to really come together and really, instead of just being silos, we really could come together and have a conversation like this and maybe even have some progressive thoughts from that and find more other ways that we can bring more people on to say, hey, look, why don't you jump on what we're doing? Let's get more people podcasting. Let's get more people taking control of their voices, getting more people on YouTube, our podcast. I love when people are talking to each other. One last thing I'm going to mention that I'm really excited about, like, for example, I reached out to this doctor who's all about lifestyle medicine. He wrote a book. He lives in the UK. And I reached out to him thinking that he would never reply back to me. Like later, he wrote back to me like, yeah, of course I'll be on your show to talk about, you know, my cookbook and all these different things, you know, so good. now now I'm interviewing him across the pond. You know, I'm here in Pennsylvania. He's in the UK. It's amazing. It's really amazing. I love it. I do too. And I think you make a really intelligent point about us just having less barriers to actually connecting in the first place. That for sure is a really powerful tool. I've also found though, to kind of dovetail on what you were saying around physicians collaborating, I found it to be an incredibly supportive place. I have not found anybody trying to edge me out or saying anything negative about the show or anything where it feels competitive. It feels like we're all really trying to elevate each other. And I have to say sometimes in medicine, that feels really refreshing. And I think that it's a really positive thing that that's part of the culture that we're building in this space. People ask me, Mark, should I do this? Absolutely. Get in the pool, man. The water is great. And it's actually even outside of medicine. So the interviewer who I really respect and I admire, both in terms of technique and the way they structure their interviews is Torre. And he and I connected on Twitter and I asked him, hey, man, do you, you connect to a Torre? Yeah. 
man, I'm a big fan of his show. He's incredible. He's wow, incredible. Wow, so I said, wow. do you mind if I email you? And he said, sure. I emailed him four questions. He replied in less than a day, less wow. than a day. This guy is proper famous. For those who don't know, Torre is like one of the most prominent, you know, musical journalists, yes. I say out yes. there, at least was doing a musical journalist when yeah. I was in high school and college, yeah. him following Tupac and he was with Rolling Stone at one point. That's the guy. He That's was it. with Vibe Magazine and then he was on MSNBC. He had his yeah. own show and now he has his own podcast called The Torre Show. But in terms of hierarchy of people that he's interviewed and hierarchy in terms of journalists, he's up there in the pantheon. He's the guy. Pretty impressive. Wow. Wow. And his interview style, he deserves to be where he is because the way he interviews people, the rhythm, the tone, the structure, the way he gets people to tell stories and to share is really exceptional and he never, ever misses. But the point here is, right, he's never seen me. He doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. And yet he writes me a full, like, two-page email answering my questions with really thoughtful, kind responses that this space is special. This space yeah. is very, very special. Yeah, it's a really good time that I hope that more doctors who are listening to this show or even pre-meds or medical students, you know, jump on this and don't wait, create something, start a podcast, whatever, start tweeting, put your mouth into it. Because I think the more people who are out there, the better. Just like you, people ask me, hey, do you think I should create podcasts about doctors who are doing things outside of medicine? I'm like, absolutely, actually. And if it yeah. wasn't for podcasts that are out there, yours and other podcasts, I wouldn't have like the benchmark to really continue to, you know, elevate my podcast, right? It continues to make everybody's podcast better. You see, let me ask you this question though. So, right, you're still in active clinical medicine. You're a busy trauma surgeon. You work really hard. Did you ever think though, that you would be doing something in medicine that could be thought of as being pioneering? No. Because we're in this space, right? It's weird to think about it, but we do get those pings. Like, should I be doing this? And how does it look? We're going to look back when you and I are retiring and we're sitting back on our, you know, on our rocking chairs on the front porch, like wondering <laughs> about the weather. We're yeah. going to be looking back and being like, look at the podcast space now. And we yeah. were kind of out there at the front. It's kind of exciting to think about it. it that it's, way. it's really exciting. And to answer that question, absolutely not. You know, I yeah. really just thought yeah. that, like you were describing, like I jumped through all the hoops, I got right. all the credentials and the qualifications. And then I was yep. just kind of like, what now? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess my life is just going to be like this for the next you know, 15, 20 years until I retire. Right. You know, I really look back on that moment where I just said, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to put something out there. And even though I still cringe listening to my first like 50 episodes or even more <laughs> up until this last one, you know, <laughs> you know it's know. just, I'm just so glad that we all started. Yeah. Because you know, I've learned from you. I've learned from, you know, all the other different physician podcasters out there or even, you know, other podcasters out there. This is really a safe space for everyone. So it's really a great time. And that's why I want to get your opinion because you've interviewed some people who are on the, I'd say, not the fringes, but are on the forefront of medicine on healthcare delivery. You talk about on your show, you know, healthcare technology. You talk about the money that's involved with healthcare. You've featured physicians who've done some really cool things outside of medicine. You've featured physicians who have been in very harrowing situations, like you featured the ER physician who was at UPMC, the hospital that took care of the victims in the synagogue shooting, unfortunately. But then you also just, you have people from all walks of life. You obviously know where healthcare is going, or you seem to have, you know, your ear on where the healthcare scene is going. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on where doctors fit into this. Like the old school way of looking at things is very physician centric. Like we're pushing things. Like we come up with the new technologies, we come up with the new techniques, the new trials and so forth based off of what I'm looking at, I'm not sure if that's really the case nowadays. What are your thoughts on that? 
It's a great question. I would suggest the following. I would suggest that, first of all, I agree with the premise that we are a place where healthcare is changing very, very quickly. I would not take the mantle that I know what's coming. I have absolutely had the opportunity to speak from thought leaders that are going to be helping to drive the work and their answers around what's coming are totally inconsistent. So I think that what's clear is that everything is really murky and that there is going to be a major sifting period because it does need to change it being healthcare. And healthcare is this big amorphous thing. It can't go away for so many reasons. It can't get too far away from its core principles, but it also needs to be different. So reconciling that tension is going to be a big one. Physicians have a pivotal role to play. And the challenge is that we've abdicated a lot of that decision-making. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Let's underscore that. Yeah. And so what I would suggest, the reasons behind that are many fold, but the piece that underlies it, and I say this with no small sense of humility, is hubris. I think that physicians really were elevated and were really paragons of society and really could do amazing things in the micro. But as healthcare evolved in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and really turned into something totally different than what it was, where it's big business, where it's a major driver of GDP, where it's one of the biggest employment sectors in the entire country, physicians were edged out over and over and over from many, many different directions and it became very difficult to keep track of. We really will need to reclaim that if we want to have a seat at the table. And I would use as the primary example the implementation of the electronic health record. This was something that was done to healthcare to providers. It was done to physicians. We had no say. I was part of it. I was there when it happened. I went from paper to EMR in a day. There was no input. There was no, hey, what do you think is going to work? Is this going to be dangerous? Is this going to be successful? There was no prospective data. There was no piloting. It was just on. And we can't do that again because we see all of the disruption that it's caused. So I would propose that as we're moving through this, physicians need to Mona Hanna Atisha, when she came on my show, man, she is just exceptional. And she said, physicians carry a megaphone and they need to keep it turned on. We need to keep it turned on. We have to be a part of the conversation. What that part is, we own it. I don't know what it is yet. You don't know what it is yet. It's no. going to be different for you as a trauma surgeon than it is for me as a hospitalist. But we have to own our part and we have to be powerful advocates where the patient is first, the team is second, and the individual is third. If we're able to help drive that work, it's going to go a lot better. If we are continuing to be edged out, we're going to have a problem. I think it's a really good point. The question I have then is, is to some people, even sometimes I think being patient focused in the center of this, I think sometimes gives us a disadvantage. Obviously, it's hard to not take that standpoint. And I think from a public relations standpoint, that's horrible. But I do think from a negotiating standpoint, you know, from a pure monetary standpoint and a power standpoint, having them in the center sometimes leaves us at a disadvantage. And I'm not sure exactly how to move past that point. Yeah. I don't know. It's a tension, but we have to push back because we have to remain. I think that the narrative will become, we will always be patient-centered, but it also can be population-centered. We need to I think more broadly, more expansively, yeah. where human beings are still at the center. It will always be the one that's on your operating room table or that I'm sitting down with with their family. But in the macro, it's population-centered. And, you know, I've been able to have some really interesting conversations with people involved in healthcare technology, and we both see the excitement around AliveCore and the Apple Watch and these sorts of things and how they're being bought and, this, and all of this. What I always remind people is 
these entities, they are not patient-centered. They are margin-centered. That's a problem. Our responsibility is to say, if you're doing things to human beings, harvesting their data, tracking their EKG, tracking their sleep patterns, their blood glucose, whatever the case may be, it better be population-centered or we're going to go sideways because those things will not go very well. Well, you know, it's a good point that you mentioned. I listened to your episode with Christina Farr from last year or two years ago where you mentioned like, well, what if said company decides to get rid of an app? You know, like that doesn't occur in medicine, right? Or like a drug, like they just continue to legacy medication or there's a way to properly get you onto something else. If a company just decides that we just don't want to use this app, we don't want to use this machine anymore because it's just not profitable anymore. That can mean life or death to a significant amount of patients. It's not if they decide to do that. It's when, because right. it will happen. Right. Yeah, there's no question about it. That is really fascinating. When you said that, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Because everybody is clamoring for the days, particularly within the EMR, EHR standpoint, right? Like, I'm the one who's like, Man, I can't wait till Google gets into this. Because I feel like it's easier for me to go through my email and go through Google Docs. And everything works so much better, right? And Christina brought up the whole comparison with Steve Jobs. It's Uh easier for him to share certain things than share his medical records, right? But like, it's easier to use these other systems and to use EHR system, which obviously now studies are showing it just increases billing, not patient outcome. It's an interesting take on things that I think I really appreciate your show for really having those type of conversations. I appreciate that. And it's really useful for me and it helps me as well because then it informs other discussions. The other thing that it's done for me is I've never been a big guy with confrontation. And so when I have the lead health technology reporter from CNBC, Christina Farr, on my show, and she's saying these things, I have developed a much stronger sense of courage and being able to sort of step forward. She's been on the show four times. We have these incredible discussions. But to say, this doesn't sound right, and here's why. And to then have that rational conversation and some really good give and take, it's helped me to develop that skill. And that's also why I really encourage people to paddle out into these waters in some form of social media, because you will, physicians will need to assert that with people who are not physicians. They will need to be able to do it in a language that can be understood so that there is that give and take. You can't use lingo. You can't use medical jargon. You have to be inclusive. And that's how you can make progress. You and I could do jargon back and forth all day long, but no one else is going to understand us. And that's part of the problem. We have to be able to speak in a language that's more inclusive and yet still be heard, still have that crucial conversation. Okay. Well, you're a medical director. Oftentimes you get asked, are you a suit or are you a scrub? I'm sure. Yeah. What's been your experience with being able to basically represent physicians and then yeah. also at the same time being able to talk to the suits? How has been your play on this been? Because you know how we look at medical directors most of the time or, you know, chief medical officers. It's not uh-huh. the most positive light, if you yep. know what I mean. So I'd like to know how you handle that situation. So this is a vital thing. And I look forward to when these sorts of conversations between two people who are now attendings and have been attendings for a while and are moving it. We're having this conversation. This should be happening in medical school so people can be thinking about it early on. It's really important to be intentional around how much clinical work you continue to do as you take on a leadership portfolio in medicine. For me, it's vital that my teammates see me working, that they know I love working clinically, that they see me doing all the shifts, nights, overnights, coming in extra when somebody needs coverage, it's really important to take that dynamic of leading from the front so that they can trust that if I'm asking them to do something, if I say, hey, we need to go and do this to improve this metric or to impact this part of patient experience, 
they can't come at me with, well, Mark, you don't understand what it's like. Mm, you're not and in the trenches that whole That's time. right. So you have to keep that credibility. And that is a real tension, right? The first thing, the first card that's played at the table when administration, right, that big word administration brings something forward to docs, docs will immediately push back with, you don't understand with what it's like. I like to try to take that away, not because I'm trying to disarm people, but because we can bridge that gap. We can do both. Right, you can lead and be clinical. In fact, you should Elite. lead and be clinical. I agree with that. And I think that that's a really important first step. Hey docs, there's a saying, if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're probably on the menu. Now's the time to define your future by being a part of the Physician CEO program. Physician CEO is a business immersion program developed by MBA faculty from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. You're getting an intensive MBA style education made up of modules that cover topics like leadership, entrepreneurial ventures, and everybody's favorite, branding. And guess what? This program is designed for busy physicians like yourself who don't have time for an MBA, but still want to be a better version of yourself. Trust me, the program gets you in focus from day one. So get those skills needed to lead a hospital or start a new venture. You're always going to ensure that there's an open seat waiting for you at the table. Don't miss this opportunity because class is filling up. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. The other thing, too, that I'm interested in your opinion is, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, a couple of months ago, maybe even less than that, there was the huge stay in my lane situation yeah. on Twitter yeah. where particularly ER physicians and really proud to say trauma surgeons finally, finally stepped up and said, look, you want to see what it's like to stay in my lane? Here's pictures of my scrubs that are, you know, blood drenched here, are pictures of, you know, the operating room floor or even the ER floor. Here's all these blood bags and packets like this is what it is to stay in my lane. And whether or not, whatever side of the political game you're on, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the end point right here. I think it's about time. I thought it was about time that trauma surgeons, ER physicians, and other physicians in general just are really talking about what's really going on in the trenches, putting it out instead of just keeping quiet about it. Like you said, abdicating and just, you know, being that neutral source for so many years and decades. I think it was time that we started to take, you know, a step out and start, you know, take more of a controversial step. Even if it's not popular, who cares? Like you have to advocate for your patients. The word that I associate with that, and I remember when the NRA's post came out and I remember when the responses started, the word that I would use is exhilaration. I felt exhilarated. I was so excited seeing physicians come together shoulder to shoulder in one voice saying, absolutely not, was amazing. The prelude was just to circle back to her again, Mona Hanna Atisha standing up to the municipal government saying, our water is toxic, you're not fixing it, and here's the research that I've done. But her and her team, these are just a couple of voices. That was the prelude. This was us realizing, hey, we are really powerful here. We are still very respected. We are well-trained. We are smart. And we will stand up when we need to stand up. And I think there's a lot of accelerants to that, social media being a big one. And I think that it's continued to ripple. I think that one of the great things about medicine is we are accountable. Yes. And I think that we've also looked inward and we've said, well, how do we make medicine better? So now we have times up for healthcare. 
looking at how women and minorities are treated in healthcare and calling out some really, really important questions and turning over some really big rocks and looking at what's underneath and saying, okay, we're going to fix this stuff and let's commit to fixing it so that our profession can be what it needs to be. It's all happening really fast. It's exhilarating. I agree also. And you know, one thing that I've really been impressed by is, you know, normally the younger generation, you kind of hold them in line. You're like, wait your space, wait your time. It's not time for you. I found myself actually to be really inspired by the millennial generation. From a social media standpoint, they obviously understand social media a lot better than my generation and your generation. We're in the same generation, I'm assuming. But they understand it a lot better. They're a lot more open with talking about work-life balance. I found myself actually empowered to kind of speak more on my behalf, mainly because they've been able to do so, right? But, you know, I just never envisioned that I would be taking advice from someone who's like five years, even 10 years younger than me on my career. Has that kind of creeped up to you? Have you seen that at all? I'm sure you've seen that particularly within the hospitalist realm. What are your thoughts on that? It hasn't crept up on me. It hit me upside the head. (laughs) I got more active on Twitter and on social media about three or four months ago. Before then, it was, here's my podcast episode, and then I would disappear because I had all the fears and anxieties. I didn't want to be involved. I've had Kevin MD on the show, and even talking to him directly still didn't get me comfortable with the idea of being on social media. It is absolutely people in the generations behind me who are the ones who are teaching me how to do this work on social media, who are helping me to find my voice, who are allowing me to feel inspired by watching how hard they will advocate for what they think is important and how they're able to rally people to them. So 100% agree with you and I want more of it. And it's also been a really interesting power differential because you're right, what you were saying, right? Medicine has always been very hierarchical, right? It's you know your place, you don't speak out of turn. These things, I mean, it's nonsense, but it's the way it was for a long, long time. You know, surgical training, internal medicine training, right? You have your slot, you stay there. It's very different now. I've had people tell me their experiences as medical students and as residents or as fellows, having their attendings come to them and say, can you give me, how do I use hashtags? How do I tag things up? It's unheard of. And it's so good. It's so good. Imagine what it's like, like being like the attending of like the white coat investor, you know, like, or, you know, like, is, like <laughs> totally. can I get advice from you? Like, wait, wait, hold yeah. on, my boss, you know, like, like, <laughs> like totally. I find, but I find that really fascinating, you know, like his blog and other blogs, passive income and the <laughs> white coat uh, investor is getting pinged by professors from all over the country. Right. Uh, right. You know, like what's his, he wrote with JL Collins wrote a book. Obviously he's been in front of the personal finance game and talking about investing and so forth. And he's featuring you know, Jim into his writings. It's just, it's really interesting. It's really powerful. I have a young trauma surgeon where I work at. And right now, like he is scouring either passive income MDs or the white coat investors website all the time. I'm like, well, what's going on? He's like, well, look, man, like I want to understand this information because I don't want to be here in 20 years with no options, basically, right? I want to practice because I want to be able to practice, you know, which is a double-edged sword, right? In one realm, yeah, we want other doctors to be able to practice when they're happier and be able to be in control of their careers. But also at the same time, you know, and that leads me to my next question. Like, what do you think about that whole concept that it's possible in 20, 30 years, like just the way how we practice medicine will be completely different. It'd be mainly shift work possibly. You know, it may look just far differently than how we practice right now. Medicine will look differently for sure. I want to pick up on something that you just said, if you don't mind, though. This idea of your colleague who is looking at all of these websites and listening to all these podcasts around, you know, building his financial acumen, us learning how to do social media. Speaking of not abdicating and not missing opportunities, 
I'll be very upfront about this. It's my expectation that medical schools in the United States, that residency programs in the United States build this into their curriculum. Oh yeah, they got to do they, it. Physicians, nurses, physician assistants, all of us must receive this sort of training from the best people. And it is happening. There's programs that have created medical directors for academic social media. We've been having these incredible conversations on Twitter with folks that I've connected with. Should we be putting our podcasts and our Twitter threads that get a million encounters in 24 hours, should those things be going on our professional CVs? We've been having these conversations, but these are fundamental things that we must be taught. Where better than when you're a medical student or a resident to start having those conversations when you are so receptive, when all you want to do is absorb information and learn so that you can really hit the ground running as an attending. This is an opportunity that absolutely cannot and should not be missed. And if it's not missed, if it's capitalized upon the opportunities, think of the unbelievable amounts of intelligence and creativity that you're going to now be freeing up and leveraging. Oh my gosh. I think that's an amazing point. I think the first step in that is actually understanding that I think possibly the reason why it's not taught is because either our attendings or even the medical schools in general don't know. They don't know like the proper decision making to make. Give you an example in my residency program. I remember multiple times they would give an hour of time to some type of professional financial advisor who would come by and talk to us about, you know, seriously, so you know what I'm going to say. I had 30 minutes of financial counseling as a fourth year medical student, 30 minutes, but he bought Chick-fil-A, which is nothing compared to where it is now. 30 minutes of financial counseling, 30 minutes. They bring Chick-fil-A, you know, whatever (laughs) it may be, right? Because it's the bomb, right? Let me eat this. Let me see what he's got to say, right? And then you want seconds. So you got to stay a little bit longer, right? (laughs) Right. And then next, you know, you're signing up with this guy and then they're talking to you, not about, you know, living within your means. Not about, you know, creating a proper emergency fund. They're talking about disability insurance or they're talking about. It's like a timeshare pitch. Right, exactly. And, you know, I'm not saying that that stuff is not important. Disability insurance is not important. It's very important. And having life insurance, term life insurance, everyone, is very important, (laughs) right? right. But it's just as important to be teaching, just like what you said. Like, you got to teach these residents, like, look, if you want to go on these interviews, you're going to have to pay for these plane flights. You're going to have to pay for you know, fellowship applications, all these different things. You need an emergency fund. If you're going to go on these interviews, you need X, Y, and Z. Like those are the things that I don't even think they even know. And that's why it doesn't even get taught. That's right. Financial literacy, managing difficult conversations, leadership, implicit bias, all of this stuff, right? Krebs cycle, whatever. I can Google that whenever I want. And I'm also not going to use it when I'm at the bedside. You know what I'm going to use when I'm at the bedside? Bioethics. I'm going to use crucial conversations techniques. I'm going to use techniques that help me recognize my own implicit bias and work hard to overcome it. I'm going to use tools that help me improve team-based culture. I'm going to use things around dyads and huddles and all. This is the expectation that we're going to have of each other. If you're not teaching that to your medical students and your residents and all of your learners, you're missing a really, really important opportunity. It's really exciting. And, you know, to get back to this debate that we were having about CVs, you know, we publish things in these journals that nobody ever sees and they just sort of disappear, but you put them on your CV. If you were to put something on Twitter that gets a million engagements in 36 hours, which you probably have, Tony Bray, when he puts up one of his incredible Twitter tutorials, I call them hashtag med threads. These things are unreal and they probably get several million encounters. That should be on his CV. And we're having this big debate and all of these people were pushing back and saying, you know, this is why it wouldn't. And I finally was like, listen, I'm not asking. I'm a medical director. I hire physicians. 
I'm telling you, put this stuff on your CV. I right. want to see it. This is a differentiator. This shows you have a skill set and insight that's different than most other people. I'm going to hire that. I want that skill set on my teams for sure. Oh, that should be applauded, right? Someone has to be able to say, this is going to be important for my program. So I'm glad you said that. I got two questions, but I'm going to ask the first one, which is, what are your thoughts on, because we talk about getting all this additional training, being multi-talented and so forth. Obviously, the counterpart to us is lawyers, I would say, right? Lawyers. I'm pausing. When you and I were growing up, yes, but I'm wondering. Well, in to, terms of. To, to finish the thought, I'm going to go ahead and finish the thought. I'm going to sit with that for a second. <laughs> I don't want to step on your question, but let's keep going for sure. Right. So there's lawyers, there's engineers, doctors. But yes. in terms of like professional school, you know, degree okay. and so forth. Yes. Lawyers up there also. That's right. What I'm fascinated by is their ability to get a certain level of training, get a great degree, and have the ability to practice as a lawyer and go and do different specialties in being a lawyer. But everybody knows a lawyer is like multi-man. Like you can be so multifaceted in so many different realms. You can literally, for example, my medical school was run by the president was a lawyer, right? And then huh. the person right below her was a lawyer. And then below that was a lawyer. Like in so many different realms that you don't expect lawyers are kind of running the show, right? Because they decide that they want to use their talents in so many different ways, obviously to become politicians, just as an example there. Do you ever see like doctors being able to do something similar? I mean, we have the skill set, right? Like we've gone through all the different rigors. You have physicians who are CEOs of hospitals, CEOs of certain companies. Do you ever see that happening? But first, I know you probably want to answer that. that no, I'm with you. You've made your point really well. I'm on your side on this. Because you're right, it's that same idea, right? You go to college, you're focused in college, you study hard, you got to get good grades, et cetera. Then you go on to additional training and all that that entails. So in that perspective, yes, 100% the same. And then what you said that I think is really smart, and I've thought about too, is when you look at the pie of leadership and things that really drive organizations and politics, lawyers have disproportionate relative to physicians taken on those roles. That's part of what I was saying earlier in the show is around we abdicated that work. Do physicians have the potential to do it? Absolutely. Should they do it? Absolutely. Will they do a good job at it? Absolutely. There are several physicians that have national reputations now in varying things that I want to see them run for office. There's a couple, I won't shout them out now unless you really ask me to, that I've <laughs> said, please run. And there was one that I was joking with just yesterday. I want to see the GIF file. I want the video, you know, the hidden video of her opponent finding out that they're going to be running against her. I want their reaction video of like, oh, this is going to be awful. I'm going to lose. <laughs> I can't beat her. She's going to crush me. This is going to be awful. And it's Esther Chu from Oregon Health Sciences University. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't thinking about her, but once she met, I was like, yeah, it's Oh, could you again. imagine if yeah. Esther ran for office? Mm -hmm. Look at the energy that came out of Time's Up. Look at the energy that came out of Stay in Our Lane, or Joseph Saccharin, mm -hmm. right? The trauma surgeon from Johns Hopkins. Could you imagine if they ran? Physicians would rally behind them in a way that, I mean, it could be unprecedented. It would be so exciting. And they'd win. I really think they'd win. Now, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What's inspiring you the most right now? Is, mm. is it a podcast? Is it a special type of reading? Yeah, that's a fun question. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I have a really diverse mixture. I do not only listen to physician podcasts. There's so many of us now, it's impossible to keep up. I curate my episodes that I listen to. So like for your show, there'll be themes and topics. I'm like, yep, I'm on that one and I'll grab it up. 
there will be, you know, episodes of the curbsiders, same sorts of things. I really enjoy my sports podcast. I need some level of escapism with podcasts. So, I mean, I, I play and I love all sports. I was a sports writer in college, but the sports podcast that I like a lot, I really enjoy Bill Simmons podcasts. Oh, yeah. the Those are fun. The sometimes he rubs me the wrong way. Sometimes his takes are a little bit off, but he gets great guests. He's, He's from Boston. Guy. So that's why. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I really enjoy that show. There's some great history podcasts out there. I really enjoy Dan Carlin's podcast, Hardcore History. That's a good one. In terms of reading, I don't read leadership books. I don't really read those sorts of things. The last one I read was Crucial Conversations that was recommended to me by a friend and colleague. That was a game changer for me. You know what? Hold on. Before we go to the next point, I want to get your opinion on this. Okay. You said you don't read books about leadership, but you just read that one, right? Let me ask you a question. Have you read that extreme leadership book? (laughs) So I was about to say, I don't read a lot of books about leadership. So the two that I recommend to people, there's two books and one article. Let's talk about this. Book one, Crucial Conversations. Book two is Extreme Ownership. Oh, Extreme Ownership. That's what it is. Okay. I read Extreme Ownership right before I took this job as medical director. The timing could not have been perfect. I picked it up off the shelf. I'm like, this book is not going to work. This is not going to make sense. I can't even remember how I heard about it, but I thought, let me give it a try. It resonated with me. I won't lie. I mean, the stories in it, they're very dramatic. They're very intense. But the leadership lessons in it, they made a lot of sense to me. The idea of taking ownership. I was taking on this big team that was in turmoil. What's my approach going to be? It gave me a really nice, rational approach that I could lean on and would be reliable. And it served me really, really well. I had Jocko Willink on the podcast. He came on Explore the Space before he was Jocko Willink, the super famous, you know, successful guy. I'm going to take a listen to that one. It's really good. And I told him, I didn't think this book was going to work. And it totally did. And I really got a lot out of it. And we had a really interesting back and forth around the application of this book in healthcare. And that book, I recommend it widely. Some of the content is not necessarily for everyone. They're very graphic war stories. But the leadership lessons buried within, not buried, that's not the right word. They're very transparent. They're good. They're very good. They're very transparent. They're very applicable. They're very generalizable. They're easy to teach. And they're easy to hold people accountable to. And then the third piece that was really helpful for me was an article that I read in Business Insider. I don't remember how I found it. It was called Redefining Perfection. And it was by a retired fighter pilot named Dave Burke. And Dave Burke flew everything in the arsenal, including the F-22 and the F-35. He was a Top Gun instructor. He's one of the most advanced pilots on the entire planet. This article was about redefining the idea of trying to be perfect and how at that level of being a fighter pilot, Everything, every debrief is around what could I have done better? Being accountable to your teammates, being accountable for mistakes, having those conversations in a culture that embraces that approach and elevates it as opposed to hammering it. Of course, I reached out to Dave. He's now been on Explore the Space four times. The first one we talked about, and I explained to him what morbidity and mortality conferences were like in medicine, where <laughs> like they make you cry and they humiliate you and they beat you up. You're laughing. You how, met how does it compare to his? Like he started laughing too. I told him, I'm like, these things can be a bloodbath. And he's like, yeah, that's not good. He's like, yeah, that's, you don't want that. Yeah. Because it drives that feeling of wanting to share mistakes, share accountability, learn from one another. It drives that away from you. I remember going to morbidity and mortality conferences and hating. I didn't learn anything. I just resented having to watch residents cry. It was awful. Yeah. So those three pieces were really impactful for me. Those were the biggest drivers, and I go back to them a lot. So I've reread Dave's article, I don't know how many times. That article was really important for me because in terms of wanting to build culture, in terms of wanting to create team-based culture, organizational culture in healthcare, that's a big one. 
you and I are seeing patients together, right? We're doing trauma and hospitalist co-management. And you see that I did something wrong with one of your patients. I forgot the anticoagulation or I started the wrong antibiotic or whatever. We need to be able to say in an environment of respect and the desire to get better for you to be able to say, Mark, this is what I observed and I need you to be able to be accountable and let's create a system to do it better. And for me to say, you know what? I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I'm committed to getting better. Here are the steps that I'm going to take. Here's what I'm going to add to my checklist. So the next time I'm seeing your patient, I don't forget something. We don't have that yet. Yeah. And the ability to take the feelings out of it, so to speak. Yeah, That's a great way of framing it. Taking the feelings out of it and just saying, or me coming to you and saying, you know what? I saw your patient yesterday. I noticed this morning I started the wrong antibiotic. Here's what I'm going to do to make it better for next time. I'm not even going to wait for you to catch it. I'm going to come to you and say, I realized that I forgot to order labs this morning and didn't notice that the hemoglobin had dropped. This is what I'm going to do differently next time. So when you and I are seeing patients together, you can trust me that I'm going to be tracking that properly and then we can respond accordingly. We're not there yet. And that's why that article really resonated with me. So I'll make sure that I feature that in the show notes. Definitely all three books. So I read Extreme Ownership. You're not going to like my take on it. I kind of felt like it was, how can I say this? I just felt, you know what it is? I felt like it was just kind of things that I already knew already. I think mainly because, fair point. mainly because I'm a surgeon and in my realm, like everything is my fault, right? As a resident, as you know, in, in every point of my career as a first year, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, and even as an attending, I was like, okay, yeah, I get that point. I see what they're saying. I and like it, that. But then we have to think to yourself, we have to think to ourselves, why in a system as big as medical training is, why is there such a big delta? Why did I finish medical training? That's a good point. That's a good and point. Not being equipped with the, why did that book? That book shouldn't have resonated with me then. That's a good point. I should have read that book and said, interesting stories, well written, but I know this stuff. For me, when I read it, some of that stuff, I was like, this is good. I haven't necessarily seen these behaviors role modeled yet or been put in a level of that kind of accountability yet. And here's where I was able to say, you know what? I see what they're saying. In a clinical standpoint, I think we're probably on the same page. It's nothing new. But I think in the standpoint of being a medical director or being, someone who's running a business or someone, a physician who's doing something that's outside of specifically patient care on a day in and day in basis. I think that's where, for me, I was like, okay, I can see where this could be helpful because I can see where the game changes, right? Like if something goes wrong with the patient, it's my fault. I understand. And I have to take blame for that. But if it's something with like, I don't know, like a shift not being taken or, you know, some type of administrative meeting or something falling through the cracks, like it's very easy to blame someone else. I you know, I kind of see your point there. And I do agree with you that I didn't think about it from that standpoint. Why did it resonate with you so much more than it did with me? So, so and that's so why the both of those gaps need to be closed. Because for me, it resonated not so much with owning issues with my patients, but okay, I'm now running a team. I'm responsible for this group of doctors. We doubled in size. We went from like 18 physicians when I started and now we're 34. What strategies can I use on us on, you know, in that sort of on a stereotyped reliable pattern over and over and over that's going to help me when there's a patient grievance or physicians are arguing or someone doesn't show up for work on time or someone's performance isn't where it should. That's what I'm talking about. But so this is such an interesting conversation. We've both identified that gap. We need to trust that our training is not just going to make you a good technical surgeon or me competent at managing heart failure. It's going to help us start to learn some leadership fundamentals and some communication fundamentals and some good cultural components so that we can have shared accountability. That our training needs to be building that as it's teaching us how to manage heart failure and how to, you know, do an open thoracotomy in the recess room. Oh, that's so much fun when I do it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a couple. Holy cow. Well, like, 
this is the reason why we should talk, right? Because yeah. I had a completely different take on the book. You had a completely different take on the book. And I, I think it's it. easy to see. And I think from a listener standpoint, we're meeting in the middle and it's like, oh yeah, actually I didn't even think about it that way. I'll look at the book a lot differently because I have the audio version as well as the, oh, the, cool. the book version. Have you also. Read Crucial Conversations? No, I have not. So that will be next on the list of books that I'm reading. Crucial Conversations came to me as well at the right time in my life where, as I mentioned earlier, right, not big on confrontation, would get kind of nervous and tight. And normally in conversations, I, have, I feel like I have a reasonable amount of mental agility and creativity. But when the temperature rises, I would feel tense and I would lose that skill to be able to navigate and, and kind of move and shift through a conversation. Again, those fundamental skills that you can use in a reliable manner. And that book, I mean, I use those skills every day. I use them at work. I use them at home. My wife read the book. My parents read the book. Some of my best friends read the book. It just gives you this reliable backbone of how to communicate with people so that you can identify shared objectives and figure out how to get there. It's just been great. It's been really impactful for me. It's been a huge driver of my ability to continue to enjoy leadership. Yeah, I can't wait to put it on my list now. So good, good, good. Yeah, I'll definitely read it. Well, so look, we're, we're doing our home and home. So when you circle back on to explore the space, we're going to oh, stand. I better read that book. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I put yeah, myself exactly. on there. <laughs> totally, totally. Awesome. awesome, awesome. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Mark, we're at the end of Holy our- cow, it went fast. That was so fun. It was fun. Let me ask you some uh, fast fire questions. You tell me what comes off the top of your head, just some quick questions. So listen, if you got an opportunity to talk to all the physicians in the world, you got a chance to be on top of a mountaintop or whatever it may be, whatever technology that you could use to get into directly the ears of physicians, what's the one thing you would tell them? The one thing I would tell them, be nice to everybody. I love it. The physician community, the medical community is so small. And it's built on trust. It's built on relationships. It's built on that shared commitment to taking care of patients. Be the person that everyone wants to reach out to. Be the person that they can trust will be kind and honest and will show integrity. Be nice to everyone. It will come back in ways that you can never expect. Most importantly, we all know each other. And if you take the opposite approach and you decide to be the person that's not nice, that's not kind, that doesn't show empathy, that demonstrates bullying behavior or demonstrates biases or things like that, everyone's going to know. Everyone will find out. Your next employer will know. And the converse is true. If you are that person who says, hey, I got you. Hey, let me help you out. Hey, I can see you're having a hard time. Let's go. Let me, let's have a coffee. Let's sit together and talk about what's going on. Hey, let me cover your shift for you. I can see you're sick today. Go home and get some sleep. Whatever the case may be, Hey, let's plan a party and let's go have some fun together. Let's get out of the hospital. Whatever that is, be that person. Because cultural context is always different, right? We all have these different spheres that we work in. Kindness has a role in the practice of medicine, however you do it. And that would be what I would suggest. I love that answer. That was really good. I love it. Thank you. So look, if you got an opportunity to get in a DeLorean and go back to yourself as a pre-med student, what kind of advice would you have given yourself? Oh, wow. It would have been sweat the details at the bedside. Don't sweat the details in life. Give yourself some space. I was really, really hard on myself. I, like that. I pushed myself really hard. So at the bedside, sweat the details. Internal medicine, especially, it's a very detail-oriented specialty. Look for the answers in the numbers. Look for the shadows on the chest x-ray. But give yourself personally some room to be okay with the roller coaster ride. I was really hard on myself, and it took a real toll. So I would ask myself to give myself that room for some kindness, for some space, 
for some flexibility for the ups and downs. I think that that would have been good advice. I love that answer too. What's a personal habit that Dr. Mark uses or has that's helping you to become more successful? I trust, I work hard to develop and subsequently trust process. Mm. So if I start a project and I've had good mentors for this, what is the process? Do we have a process? Is it reliable? Is it battle tested? Yes. Then that's what we're using. Do we have a process? No. Well then before we do anything else, let's create one with some shared understanding around how it's supposed to work and who's accountable for what and who owns which parts. And let's execute around that. And the place where that really came home to me was during the Sonoma County wildfire in 2017. The hospital that I work at, Santa Rosa Memorial, was the only hospital in the region that was still open. It was extraordinarily stressful and difficult. We just doubled, triple, quadrupled down on it. What is our process? Stick to it. Trust it. Follow your process. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. That's the name of your book. I love it. (laughs) How about this? Is there uh, someone famous, anybody that you find inspirational or admire that you wouldn't mind either, you know, following around or even trading places with for 24 hours? Barack Obama. Really? I don't get starstruck. Mm -hmm. There's a couple people out there that if I had a chance to meet them, I'd be pretty starstruck. I would say right now, Esther Chu is one of them. I would really really love to meet Esther Chu and I'd be very nervous to meet Esther Chu. Yeah. President Obama, that would be just his whole approach. One of the things that I read when he was still president that also really resonated with me was that it introduced me to the concept of decision fatigue and how he crafted his wardrobe such that he had like two or three different suits, one or two ties, every buttoned up shirt was white, recognizing that the human brain can only make so many decisions in a day. And he knew that he would have to make some very big decisions. So what are the things he can just dispose of? The lunch order is the lunch order. The wardrobe is the wardrobe. I'm not worrying about that. I'm worried about what's going to happen when I go into this meeting. I'm worried about what's going to happen when that phone rings. For me, that was really informative. And, you know, he's, look, it's a polarizing thing to say. I don't care. I thought he was an incredible president. I thought he was an amazing leader. He was not perfect. And he owned his imperfections. And that would be an experience for sure. I'd love to know. And the people that I know who have met him have lost their minds. (laughs) That was. He's like a rock star, right? I am transformed. There's an electricity around that guy. I'd like to know his decision process in uh, choosing that tan suit one day. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. totally. Remember that controversy? (laughs) I remember it well, I know. Uh, We we hearken back to those days when a big deal was the president wore wore a tan suit. (laughs) That's another episode, right? (laughs) That's right. So Dr. Mark, what's one piece of technology that you're using right now that's making your life easier? Ooh. Or even a life hack. It doesn't even have to be technology. Oh, man. I love that one. A life hack that's making my life easier. I don't want to say my iPhone because in some ways it makes it worse because I struggle (laughs) with looking at it too much. And it happens when I'm at work, the Dragon microphone. That's a good one. Oh, you like that? Okay. For my clinical practice, using the Dragon microphone and not having to type because I can talk pretty darn fast when I want to. Mm -hmm. And the technology now is so good. The voice recognition is so good. I can dictate my whole note for the day done and signed in just a couple of minutes. So the Dragon microphone, that saves me on an everyday basis. It saves me compared to where I was, you know, five years ago with how I did my daily work. It's saving me a full hour of time every single day that I can then do other things, either make sure I have more time to attend an important meeting, circle back and call a family member for the third time, 
go back to the bedside and chew the fat with somebody. That's a big one, actually, as I'm even hearing myself say it. That's been a really, really big shift for me. And it's been to the positive. <laughs> Prevent you from getting carpal tunnel also. <laughs> Which I had compressive ulnar really? neuropathy as a resident. Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Well, look, Dr. Mark, you know, at the end of my show, I always ask my guest this question, this sentence. I want you to complete this. It's, I'm not just a doc. I'm a... A caring human being. I love it. Very good. Boom. Mic drop right there. This is great. This is great. Dr. Mark Shapiro. Thank you so much for coming on Docs Outside the Box. This was really a fun discussion with you. I think we went into so many different, you know, realms and dimensions, but, you know, obviously keeping the physician in the center. If you're open to it, I'd love to do this again. So hopefully I can have you on. Maybe we could do volume two, volume three. This was such a blast. This was so much fun. I loved every part of this conversation. I cannot wait to have you on Explore the Space. We're going to pick up on some of the same stuff. This was absolutely a treat. I really appreciate you welcoming me onto your show and I cannot wait to do it again. If people are interested and they want to check out Explore the Space, I'm at, at ETS show on Twitter, www.explorethespaceshow. I'm on all of the usual podcast platforms. But seriously, this was so much fun. I cannot wait for round two, round three, round four. This was <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And I better read that book, right? That's right. That's right. I'm going to call you out. <laughs> that's right. If you don't, we're going to have the crucial conversation. Got you. Got you. <laughs> 